Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. What's going on? Guys, um, right up top, I just want to give an update to a case we've talked about, I think, one million times, Varsity Blues. Oh, these guys again? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can't get away from them, but because we've talked about it so much, we've often mentioned the former Wilkie Farr co-chair, Gordon Kaplan, and how he was roped in as one of the parents who, you know, he allegedly paid $75,000 to get his daughter's ACTs adjusted up. This is is fun for us because it's like in our world, like this is... This, this is, is like the celebrity. This is the big celebrity yeah. along with the actual celebrities. <laughs> right, right. Everyone are, else is talking Lori Loughlin and, and Felicity Huffman. Lori Loughlin's like not a huge celebrity in any in <laughs> That's any true. But people know event. Who, people know who she is. Sure. Anyway, yes. I bring this, this up again yeah. because he was um, finally sentenced. So I just kind of wanted to close the chapter so everyone knew what happened with his case. The, the feds had been asking for eight months in jail. Mm-hmm. And we had a show a few weeks ago where we talked about like, Oh, he might get some real time because there's um, some the start of these um, sentencings seemed like judges were not going to just let people off with probation. Yeah. And he didn't get eight months, but he was sentenced to one month in jail. So he is going behind bars for a little while. He has to pay a $50,000 fine and do a bunch of community service. You know what I would say to him if, if, if I saw him and, and he told me that he was going to prison? What was that? I don't want your <laughs> life. <laughs> you know, we've talked about Varsity Blues so many times without getting to that joke. So yep. that's a nice way to end. I think that's maybe one of our one of our last times we talk about that big case. Yeah, well, that, that, at least that, for a while. that and the Laughlin thing, because she's still fighting it. Sure. Um, and that's, that'll be interesting. But yeah, Kaplan was funny because he was like... I remember there. I'm, I, I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to mangle the thing. But there was there were like recordings of him. Yeah, there were and, recordings and he said something of about, him. Like, I'm a, he says he said something to the effect of, "I'm a lawyer. Like I know about stuff that like that stuff like this isn't supposed to go down or something." He I'm also paraphrasing. said, "I'm I'm going to paraphrase as well." But he also close. had some stuff where he was to be like, clear. I have mens rea right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he also said things that were along the lines say. of. Um, yeah, I mean, I know this is all wrong, but um, what I'm really worried about is if it's found out right. and yeah. how this would affect yeah. my daughter's Well, life. anyway, so, that'll, get yeah. you, that'll get you a month in the clink, I guess. It will. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's what's, that's what's going on with that. We'll always keep an eye on Varsity Blues like we do. We got an interesting show for you today, though. We talked with uh, Access to Justice Specialist R.J. Vote about a really interesting uh, Supreme Court case that involves um, a life sentence um, for one of the uh, uh, one of the perpetrators of the uh, DC sniper mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, massacre, uh, you know, shooting incidents that happened uh, 17 years ago, um, and it deals with he was a uh, he was a minor at the time, and there's a whole sort of quagmire of messy case law about whether minors uh, whether juveniles should get life sentences. Yeah, really interesting talk with RJ like we always do. Um, but uh, before that. Different high court news. Yeah, there's plenty of Supreme Court to talk yeah, about. They're, yeah, they're back. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like they're they're back at school, uh, hanging out, yeah. hearing cases, <laughs> doing various things. Stephen Breyer is knocking books out of Neil Gorsuch's hand. Stephen Breyer <laughs> made a reference to the Code of Justinian uh, this week. Oh yeah, it's great. Nice, um, it's good. So, <laughs> it's nice to have him back. One of the yeah. one of the attorneys arguing before him was like was like. I, I get I get the point you're making, and I forget who it was. One of the other justices was like, "Could you share that with us? Because I I truly don't." Uh, <laughs> tell, uh, us all, t- tell tell the whole class. <laughs> but uh, the, I mean, the big case was the um, sort of landmark LGBTQ case that yeah. was um, argued on Tuesday, dealing with whether or not Title VII, the Civil Rights Act, uh, covers 
whether, whether it's prohibition on gender discrimination also covers discrimination against gay and transgender workers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first big case on that kind of issue that's going to be heard since the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, which um, everyone, many, many people know that he often sided with the liberal wing of the court and penned many of the big sweeping um, gay rights victories of the last decade. Definitely. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that that sort of has everyone thinking like, you know, this is going to be an uphill climb for for the people who are making these arguments. But we got some interesting uh, no- moments in the arguments this week from some of the conservative, one of the conservative justices that sort of, you know, it throws into question. Maybe maybe it's a closer case than we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually three fact patterns here of cases that bubbled up. Um, there were a couple different arguments going on at the high court. But what they bo- all boil down to is whether or not... Um, LGBTQ workers um, have protections under existing Title VII. Can you explain a little bit more about that bill and sort of make sure people understand what that law currently covers and why there's a big dispute here? Yes. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, it prohibits uh, employment discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and important here, uh, sex. So the issue in these cases is whether the term sex encompasses, covers uh, sexual orientation and or gender identity. Um, advocates, it, it, the people who who brought these cases have argued that it does since since the, the, the questions at issue there inherently involve sex. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like inextricably linked. There's no way to yeah, tease it like, out. There's exactly. No, there's no line item in the law that says sexual orientation, but that Sexual orientation is like tied up in the right. in your sex, right? Anyway. So the the classic examples when it comes to so when it comes to sexual orientation, the classic example is if you would fire a man because he dates men, but you wouldn't fire a woman because she dates men, then you've discriminated on the basis of sex. You sure. may have discriminated based on the person, the fact that that's a gay person, but you that sex was was inextricably mm-hmm. linked to that. Um, so when it comes to uh, gender identity, if you would fire someone because they aren't conforming to their assigned gender, you've discriminated on the basis of sex. That again, it's it's a and that's a little bit of a you know a closer. Uh, you know, that's that's easier for, I think, for people to sort of get their minds yeah. around mm-hmm. that that's a gender issue. But um, but the idea is that both of these things are, are encompassed, are, are covered by um, by the term sex in the in Title seven um, mm-hmm. in in over the last couple of years. Courts have split on this question of whether or not the, the law covers this. And that's sort of as we all know, that always sets the stage for the Supreme Court to step in. Um, the cases that were argued this week, as Amber mentioned, are it came from a few different cases, but the issue of um, sexual orientation was uh, there was a, a, a pair of, of gay men who say that they were fired because of their orientation. And then the, um, the gender identity arguments were um, a transgender woman who says that she was fired after she told her employer that she intended to live and work as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um I think what's interesting or what I th- what just from talking to people about these cases this week is that a lot of people th- sort of would instinctively say like isn't it already illegal to fire someone because they're gay? It totally depends on where you live. Exactly. So it's certain states have made it illegal, but it's not right now explicitly illegal under federal it's law. There's millions of people that that are, you know, are either in limbo or in jurisdictions where it is not um, it is it is legal to discriminate on that basis. So it's a it's a really really big case and really big question. Yeah, I mean that you hear it from 
LGBTQ advocates, it was like the the Obergefell gay marriage ruling was obviously a landmark ruling, but yeah. it's like you know maybe not even everybody wants to get married, but like bo- almost everybody is going going to be in the workforce right. at some time. I like remember the stakes are extremely high. Yeah, I remember the the commentary after that was, well, we could get married on a Saturday and then walk into work on a Monday and be fired. Definitely, yeah. So. That, that was this was always the next frontier yeah. in this uh, in this progression. But anyway, we got there were arguments this week. Yeah, on um, Tuesday, both yeah. both of these. Uh, sort of closely linked questions were were argued in two separate arguments. Um, the court seemed pretty split along the normal ideological spectrum, you know, the five conservative justices, the four liberal justices. Um, Justice Alito was maybe the most outspoken. Uh, he said that the challengers were essentially trying to operate like the like like Congress, like a, in a legislative function. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote that you saw a lot was, Quote, you're trying to change the meaning of what Congress understood sex to mean and what everybody understood sex to mean in 1964. So, um, you know, really sort of hammering the idea that no matter what you think about this, that's not what the law covers explicitly and it needs to cover it explicitly. Um, Justice Gorsuch asked if the court uh, should take into account the, quote, massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision and whether or not. Um, given those that that level of yeah. um, uh, policymaking or, or whatever that 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 Congress should be ma- should that, well, yeah. you know the idea of how much do we want judicial it? deference exactly. to, to the legislative yes, exactly. branch? Um, on the other end, there was um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor noted that Title VII was it's designed to ensure that people are treated equally, and she asked, "quote At what point does a court continue to permit invidious discrimination?" Um, Justice Elena Kagan at one point basically endorsed the idea that firing a man who dates a man would would be gender discrimination. It, mm-hmm. That, it, that the, all the arguments that you know that that it takes into account gender that gender is involved. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so we saw we sort of saw the court break the way that one would think they would. Well, so far that sounds like I think what a lot of people expected going into these arguments that breakdown, but there were some interesting things to come out of exactly what they spent their time talking about and then some curveballs maybe from certain people so let's get into the more interesting bits now that we've sort of laid the groundwork yeah i mean they the the big sort of top line thing that you saw a lot after these arguments was how much bathrooms were discussed you know i gotta say this surprises me not really much at all because i feel like talking about transgender people in bathrooms became Sure. A big deal a few years ago, and it's never really gone away. It's for better just... or for worse, the issue of of gender identity is linked to the question of gendered bathrooms for a lot of people. Yeah. And um, a quick scan of the transcript shows that the justices were also uh, quite hung up on the issue. Um, the word bathroom was mentioned 39 times in the two, Very cool. in the I two arguments. I would love to see what other arguments would have the word bathroom in it, even right? like once or twice. This has got to be a record. Cutting right? edge plumbing law. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're, we're talking about bathrooms here. I mean, that's 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 what's going on. So, uh, I mean, are, in, you doing, in, are you doing an Allen Iverson? We're no. talking about bathrooms? <laughs> um, so but we are, though. Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, they all asked specific questions about, about the issue of, mm-hmm. of bathrooms. Um, uh, even Justice Sotomayor, who I mentioned earlier, seems inclined to side with the challengers here, with the employees. Um, she acknowledged that it's a tough issue. Her quote was, there are other women who were made uncomfortable and not merely uncomfortable, but who would feel intruded upon if someone who still had male characteristics walked into their bathroom. That's why we have different bathrooms. So the hard question is, how do we deal with that? So 
even the folks who seem like they are willing to to uh, side with the challengers, they they acknowledge that that is a thing that people are going to bring up and that, that yeah. you know, there may be follow up cases about it and everything else. We began by talking about how, um, you know, Kennedy was something of a I don't know if we'd say trailblazer here or whatever, but he was he was. He was, you know, a, a vanguard of these issues, yeah. and now he's not there anymore. And so, talking about the sort of clean partisan in quotes split we have, but that was there were, like you said, Amber, there was a couple curveballs there. Let's talk about that. Yes. So the the the, the easy uh, bar napkin math is five four in favor, sure. like you know, along ideological lines. But just as Neil Gorsuch had uh, a few different statements during these arguments that had people. Questioning about whether or not maybe his vote is in play. And we haven't mentioned um, Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh didn't speak much during yeah. the arguments. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but so Justice Gorsuch, um, he, the, he's a very strict textualist, as we know. He, he, he hews to the, the words that Congress mm -hmm. wrote on the page. Um, and he seemed to repeatedly indicate that he thought that Title VII, the words of Title VII as they are written, might cover discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Mm -hmm. um, he pressed the employers and the, the – so we haven't mentioned it, but the Solicitor General was arguing um, as, a, as an amicus on behalf of the, um, on behalf of the, the employers in this situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And he, he pressed both of them on this, on this idea. Um, and, and he really asked how, you know, to explain how sex is not a factor in this, that, that um, you know, firing someone based on, on orientation, it, it's that, that to him, it, it appeared to be that sex would be one factor. The response from, from the employers was that, um, you know, the statute requires more than that, that it, that it, it requires this, like this focus on it. Um, and Gorsuch seemed to not think that that was exactly the case. The quote, isn't that enough? The statute talks about a material causal factor or some formulation like that, not the sole cause, not the proximate cause, but a cause. In what linguistic formulation would one say that sex, biological gender, has nothing to do with what happened in this case? Um, that's, so, some, that's some textualist stuff right there. I mean, it it's not hugely surprising when you understand his textualist bent. Yeah, but yeah. I do think when I started seeing headlines and, and hearing from Jimmy Hoover, who was covering this for us, um, and Braden Campbell, who wrote about it for us, when the headlines started coming in that Gorsuch might be the linchpin, like swing vote here, that is surprising. Yeah, and he, and and Gorsuch has surprised people over the last. There's, you've seen different um, tie-ups with on different um, on different issues that that he's he has broken out of sort of you know left-right molds in the political sense. And um, yeah, I, him and Kavanaugh and, specifically. Well, I thought, and, yeah. but well, he and Kavanaugh have split on things. That's what I'm saying. He, yeah, he and. He and Kagan have linked up on a bunch of Correct. different. Was, yes. was it Fourth Fourth Amendment issues? Or? This is mm -hmm. exactly the kind of nerdy like who lines up with who I know, that I, I love about <laughs> the Supreme a, Court it was, season. It was a big week for that kind of thing, but you know it's a serious thing. But yeah, I this, mean, this is, is part of it. Yeah. yeah, this is exactly how my fantasy Supreme Court league goes. Yeah. Right. But so I mean, the, you know, we might still see a a five four ruling on ideological grounds, but it at least has given people something to think about in the the months before we get this ruling. So that's what was going on at the Supreme Court this week, and we are going to talk to RJ in a little bit about what's happening at the Supreme Court next week. Um, Supreme Court's always going to take top billing here, but there is that small matter of the uh, the impeachment inquiry that's going mm -hmm. on against the president. Uh, we spent an entire show two weeks ago yep. talking about it, walking you through it. 
and talking about the difference, you know, the sort of how the politics interplay with the legalities and all of that stuff. But this week, there were a couple of different things that happened um, that were sort of squarely in the legal world that I thought were uh, were worthy of talking about. Let's do it. Um, so just today on Thursday, as we're recording, we learned that there were two associates of Rudy Giuliani, who is uh, the lawyer for President Trump, as we know, who were placed under arrest and indicted for taking part in this alleged scheme to funnel foreign money into U.S. elections uh, on behalf of various Ukrainian and Russian interests. It's funny. the uh, I saw the associates thing pop <laughs> up in, in all these headlines, and my brain is so warped from writing about the legal industry for so long. You I thought was they like, were lawyers. I was like, oh, were they like second-year associates? Or, uh, and then I'm like, oh, no, you mean in the criminal sense. Yes, uh, yes. Henchmen. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so the guy, the, the, there were four people named in the indictment. For our, pers- our purposes, we care about two of them. There's these two businessmen based out of Florida uh, named Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Uh, I laugh only because you call them henchmen and these are like... Classic this henchman like, name. This is like people from Taken or something. Anyway, uh, so these guys are—they um, have already—they have been subpoenaed by Democratic lawmakers uh, within the impeachment inquiry for basically their roles in um, helping Giuliani carry out the kind of conduct we talked about two weeks ago, convincing Ukrainian authorities to investigate Joe and Hunter Biden. To um, this is all alleged, by uh-huh. the way. You know, we're 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 firmly in that space. Um, but these guys, Parnas and Fruman, were helping Giuliani do that. Um, now, the indictments that were unsealed today uh, basically seem to show that there's another side to that coin. So while these guys are working to assert sort of U.S. interests in Ukraine, or at least the Trump administration's interests in Ukraine, um, there is this uh, sort of corollary where these two guys are helping sort of facilitate uh, Ukrainian interests into the U.S. political system. So it's a little bit complicated, but the scheme basically uh, is alleged to involve um, the creation of these shell companies and um, sort of shady filings um, to various state and federal elections that allowed these guys to basically mask foreign money from Russia and Ukraine uh, as their own contributions to campaigns to sort of advance these interests. Um, and the interests and lobbying stuff that they were doing with this money v- ranged, had, a, had, had quite a range. It went from sort of high and small. It, it, was, um, it went as high as sort of arranging for the ousting of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, which actually happened. Um, These guys were sort of part of, uh, were alleged to be sort of part of a lobbying effort that went into that, um, to something as sort of work a day as just trying to curry favor from local regulators for their marijuana business. Hmm. It covers a lot of ground there. They had a wide wide political uh, sort of, you know, sheet here. I mean... You know, this is all just alleged, but I can't imagine that the White House and Rudy Giuliani and the president are happy about this indictment. Has anybody said anything? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, yeah, I mean, there's it's important to note there's there's nothing in Giuliani is not named in the indictment. Trump is not named in the indictment. There's nothing even specifically about the impeachment proceeding, but you don't have to be some kind of brain law genius to, like, (laughs) see the connection here. Um the, the the net is very clearly widening on the type of activity that is probably going to become of interest. Like I said, these guys were subpoenaed uh, by Democratic lawmakers um, shortly after they were arrested at Dulles mm-hmm. uh, with one-way tickets to Europe. Uh, and so... And then, we should note, yeah. this was also... It was the Southern District of New York. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, that's happening in the Southern District of New York. Um, that's where the indictment uh, came down. They're going to court in Virginia, however. Um, in any case... Um, 
lots of stuff yet to play out here. To your point, Amber, uh, uh, Trump's lawyer, uh, Jay Sekulow, he put out a statement um, that sort of immediately distanced, uh, that looked to distance the White House. He said, neither the president nor the campaign nor political action committees were aware of these transactions. And even the indictment says that. It says that this was a scheme done without the knowledge of the um, sort of uh, campaigns that they were right. contributing the beneficiaries. to. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's what's going on with that. And that just broke today. Um, earlier in the week. We had some addition, uh, some additional impeachment-related drama that actually spilled into an active court proceeding. Um, so the thing is, like as we have said, the when the impeachment proceedings happen, it will happen in Congress if, if it happens. It'll happen in Congress. Um, but we had a court, you know, sort of battle bubbling up um, over the House Judiciary Committee's efforts to gather evidence for the impeachment inquiry. Um, the administration is sort of pushing back. They don't want them to get all of this evidence. And um, they applied a very creative reading of um, Watergate-era precedent that uh, really threw a D.C. federal judge for a loop this week. Yeah, I think all of this is so interesting. And and I've been particularly honed in on some of this stuff because I feel like I understand how lots of legal proceedings work and yeah. how lots of the law works, but it's so rare where there's a dispute over what um, Congress can get from an executive branch agency that this all feels like a little yeah. bit of a new thing to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so how this is playing out is just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there have been, uh, I mean, there's already, been, I've lost track of the of the sort of legal battles over uh, congressional subpoena power, but yeah. now we have this going on within the um, context of an impeachment inquiry. And basically, the committee is trying to get a hold of grand jury transcripts from the Mueller investigation. Um, this is basically all the stuff that was redacted from the Mueller report. The Democrats on the committee believe that, or, or at least are hoping to make the case that within that material from the grand jury that's all sealed, there could be evidence of obstruction of justice and any number of other things. Um, so that's what they're after. And that's sort of what sets the stage for this stuff. You mentioned that, uh, uh, that, that some of the arguments sort of threw a judge for, for a loop. What, what exactly, you know, uh, what is the, what is the case law on this? And, and, you know, what, what, what were they arguing that, that really... Yeah, um, there were some really entertaining exchanges, which we'll get to. Um, but just as a general rule, as I think most people know, grand jury records are are secret and sealed yeah. um, all the time. There is, however, an exception that says that they can, they can be released for judicial proceedings. Um, and there's case law that includes impeachment proceedings under that definition of a judicial proceeding. Um, the DOJ was pushing back against that in uh, D.C. federal court on Tuesday. They were doing a lot of interesting tap dancing around uh, what these terms mean, and it got kind of weedy, but they basically said there needs to be some degree of formality for an impeachment uh, inquiry to begin. And they basically said, um, you know, the House sort of has to vote to begin one rather than Nancy Pelosi just saying we're doing an impeachment mm-hmm. um, proceeding. And that led to some, pre- like I say, led to some pretty funny exchanges. The principals here are the, the, the attorney for the DOJ is uh, a woman named Elizabeth Shapiro. And the judge hearing the case was uh, 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 D.C. Judge uh, Beryl Howell. Uh, so the judge is basically asking Shapiro, you know, she said there, there needs to be some formality with the launch of an impeachment hearing. And um, <laughs> the, the judge asked Shapiro, where, where is this line that connotes this formality for you? Shapiro said, I'm not advocating any specific line. 
And the judge replied, well, that is so not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I see why the judge would be a little like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Because it does seem like they're saying there has to be a line. Yeah. Um, uh, The the, the other thing that got got brought into this was um, a decision from the D.C. uh, from the D.C. federal court in 1974 in the heat of Watergate. Uh, against President Nixon, um, and there was a sort of a similar pattern of facts. And in that case, the judge did allow for this for the release of grand of grand jury documents. It's almost the exact same fact pattern, and uh, that says uh, that sort of teed up this very very remarkable thing, where Shapiro basically just says that the 1974 case was just wrongly decided. Her quote was, "The answer would be that if that same case came today, a different result would be obtained." Just sort of says the the court was wrong and you should find differently. doesn't really say anything else. That really takes Judge Howell aback. She says, wow, okay. As I said, the department is taking extraordinary positions in this case. It is unexpected to just say, you know, things that happened in Watergate were wrong. It's a a bold choice. Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, I mean, like you say, presidents don't get impeached that often. So it's not like, it's not like you're pointing to some other precedent that's more favorable to you. Right. It's like the case. Sure. And they're just saying, no, no, no. No, wrong. Erroneous. Erroneous (laughs) on all accounts. Well, Uh, what do we think moving forward? I mean, does it seem like the the judge in this case is going to buy into that argument? I mean, are they going to, is she going to view it? Yeah, so so as we sit here now, like we're recording on Thursday, despite the, those exchanges I just read for you on Tuesday, Judge Howell didn't actually rule um, they on on the document request, but I think it's pretty clear uh, from these comments that she is leaning uh, in favor of releasing these documents. She said that DC uh, uh, DC federal and Supreme Court precedents require her to give enormous deference to lawmakers, so it seems. It seems pretty close to inevitable that um, they will secure those documents and have more ammo for the um, for the impeachment inquiry going forward. In the early 2000s, when Lee Boyd Malvo was 17, he aided in the murder of 10 people in the Washington, D.C. area. Next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about whether the life sentence he received for being a part of the D.C. sniper spree is unconstitutional. Here to talk us through it is our Access to Justice reporter, R.J. Vogt. Welcome back to the show, R.J. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, we have um, a really heavy one to talk about, but it's got a lot of interesting issues, and it's going to be at the high court next week. So let's remind people what happened when the D.C. sniper was in the news. What what crimes were committed here? Sure thing. So it feels like not that long ago, but it actually has been you know almost 17 years now. Um, 2002, Malvo is 17 years old, as you said, and his father figure, this man named John Allen Muhammad, enlisted him in helping kill 10 people in this three-week shooting spree around the nation's capital. Mm-hmm. The idea was that Muhammad was going to extort the federal authorities to by killing all these people, but Muhammad was actually caught, convicted, and executed in 2009 for his crimes. Malvo received multiple life sentences without parole in both Virginia and Maryland, and the Virginia sentence came after a jury decided not to hit him with the death penalty. Back then, juveniles could still get to get the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And and in Virginia, the jury said, 
we're not going to put him to death. And so the other option was life without parole. Okay. Yeah. I want to, full disclosure, as we start talking about this, I lived in D.C. when this was all going on. So I very vividly remember um, the fear that whole area had. It went on for quite a while before they they caught this pair. um, And it was really a a tough time to be a resident in the D.C. metro area. Um, So that's just a little disclosure. (laughs) I remember I was in high school and it was going on. And it was just, it was a weird time in the news anyway. We're like post 9-11 here. It was just like this odd like vibe in the air and I was like yeah it was a crazy time um, but we're 17 years later as yeah. you said and now we're talking about the whole debacle again so uh, w- what is this case that that has put Malvo back into the news what what you know what is the legal question at issue why, why is the Supreme Court hearing this case so the real question is about his sentence this life without parole sentence that was issued for crimes that he committed as a juvenile the Supreme Court has said in a couple of recent cases just in the last seven years or so, that um, that kind of sentence is unconstitutional for juveniles. It draws on a line of concerns about cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just mentioned that you used to be able to put a juvenile to death for a crime that they eradicated that sentence actually right after the D.C. sniper happened. And they said, based on their brain science, kids are just different than adults. So there has to be a, a few differences with sentencing. First, they said no death penalty. And then in 2012, they said no life without parole sentences. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I know um, when we talk about something heavy like this DC sniper that killed a lot of people and it was such a big deal, some people will say, like, he was 17. That's so close to 18 where we draw the cutoff line. Why do we make this distinction? Yeah, absolutely. So. It's all based on, interestingly enough, brain science. Uh, Starting in the early thousands, they were able to show that juveniles, their ability to make decisions are just less developed than an adult. So in in some ways, they're less culpable. Similarly, they're more likely to be negatively influenced and more likely to show growth and maturity and rehabilitation Mm -hmm. than somebody who's older when they commit such a crime. It's interesting, the uh, the idea of the science uh, progressing to the point where you can sort of objectif- objectively assess something like that. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting is they had to draw a line somewhere. I, I think Justice Kennedy said in one of his opinions that um, the, the attributes that make somebody a juvenile don't disappear when you turn 18. Right. Yeah. But because we've already drawn the line for voting and en- enlistment in the military and stuff, that's where they've drawn the line of we're going to consider your youth at up to this point, and then after that, you're going to be considered an adult. And you had rev- you had reviewed. I know you'd done some research and even talked to some some victims' families who were like sort of had had opinions on this issue. What did they say? Well, you know, it's really it's quite an interesting divide. Um, on one side are what you might expect, which are people who are like lock them up for life. There are some victims' families that still believe the death penalty should be on the cards for juvenile murderers, mm-hmm. um, and and they feel like some people are just truly. You know, they're broken and it's safer for society if they're locked up forever. However, there's other people that some people who even lost loved ones to Malvo's spree who say he deserves a chance to be resentenced in light of his youth. There's a whole side of this case where John Allen Muhammad was sexually abusing him, right. brainwashing him. Yeah, sort of like like, like manipulation. And Total stuff, manipulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, kept him from his mother for long periods of time. And so they're saying... Because this, all of that information wasn't considered when he was sentenced, he at least deserves another shot to be sentenced where the judge says, okay, you did all these terrible things, all these terrible things that happened to you, and then make the decision rather than just saying, 
you're going to jail for life. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good backdrop for uh, this whole conversation while we're thinking about it. But I want to get into um, what the Supreme Court's going to be weighing out here. So you said that the Supreme Court's been um, moving on some precedents to make um, juvenile status more prominent in, in how things are sentenced and what's considered. How are we still talking about this now? I mean, it seems like the Supreme Court's already ruled on some of this stuff. Yeah, what's like the state of the law around right. juvenile life sentences? So it, it, the funny thing is, is it's kind of ambiguous, and I guess that's why we're back here sure. talking yeah. about it. But basically, this 2012 ruling, Miller versus Alabama, said that a juvenile life without parole sentence cannot be mandatory. It cannot be an automatic thing. You killed this guy, it's first-degree murder, you're going to go to jail for life. Mm-hmm. The Miller ruling said you have to talk about some of these other factors, like was he being abused, yeah. was he being manipulated, okay. he or she. And then four years later, the court came along in another case called Montgomery versus Louisiana, and they said Miller is retroactive. So all these kids, it was like 2,500 people that had been sentenced to life without parole as juveniles, they all have to be resentenced with consideration of their youth. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, all these kids that were just automatically sent and nobody had said, oh, he was being sexually abused or, oh, she had all these other things or, you know, we all these people, they didn't talk about their brains. They all have to be resentenced. And so there's been this huge project going on now for three years across the country as states are figuring out how to resentence people. Sure. Maybe some states have just offered automatic parole hearings for people that got it. Um, there's been a lot of disputes over how it's been carried out. You know, some prosecutors are automatically seeking these sentences to be resentenced, reissued, mm-hmm. and other prosecutors have been more, you know, okay, we're going to consider it and more see. rigorous. You yeah. Know. Well, how did okay? So we have those these two rulings on the books that have muddied the waters considerably. How did Virginia sort of incorporate these two concepts in the Malvo case? Right. So the interesting thing in Virginia is. Um, They're saying that their decision was a discretionary one. So in Virginia, a judge technically has the ability to suspend a sentence. And when Malvo's case, you know, he was facing the death penalty. This was back when juveniles could face the death penalty. And the jury came back and said, you know, based on everything we've learned about this kid and John Allen Muhammad, we're actually going to say he shouldn't face the death penalty. And the judge said, "Okay, the other option is life without parole. And that's what they gave. And technically, the judge could have suspended it, but he didn't. And so now Virginia being told, hey, you have to resentence all of these juvenile lifers, Mm -hmm. they're saying, no, we don't, because Miller only dealt with mandatory sentences. Mm -hmm. Miller only said you have to go back and redid it if it was an automatic thing. But in Malvo's case, and in a lot of other cases in Virginia, it wasn't an automatic thing. They technically could have been facing the death penalty. The judge technically could have suspended the sentence. And so their argument is, because the judge didn't suspend the sentence, then clearly he considered all the op- all the factors and said, this guy's really vile. He has to stay. I would imagine that advocates and the people that are arguing on Malvo's behalf disagree and think that it is mandatory by another name. Well, and the judges disagree, too. So a district judge and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals looked at Virginia's statute, which literally says if they're under 18, the prison, the term shall be life in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it looks pretty mandatory. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yes. And Virginia's argument that they could have suspended the sentence is loses a little bit of its mustard when you find out, as some of the advocates have exposed, that most judges didn't even know that. Oh. Mm. A yeah. lot of judges had no idea that they could be mm-hmm. suspending these sentences. So this idea of discretion gets even kind of murkier. Right. So... Situate us for what the justices might do here. There's going to be arguments soon. Um, There's going to be arguments next week, right? Yeah, right. Yep. Yes. Um, so if they say, you know, you can't, you can't be sentenced to life if you're a juvenile. What does that mean? Does that mean Malvo 
walks free or what like what what happens or he gets the sentence reduced or what happens it's one of those funny cases where the person that everybody's talking about has the least at stake everybody i talked to said because of the fact that he has multiple life sentences in different states i mean this has been 17 years in the making this this hearing right yeah. so like it, imagine that another time for the other sentences and again and again realistically considering his crimes it's not likely that he's ever going to get out of prison. It's interesting because he happens to be a party to like one of like the most like notorious yeah. sort of mass, whatever you want to call it, things. But it, he doesn't have a lot of skin in the game personally. Exactly. Yeah. But there's a lot of other, there's actually a dozen in Virginia who are falling into this same umbrella of Virginia saying this sentence was discretionary because it could have been suspended. Yeah. And those people are not notorious mass murderers. Uh, one of them, Derek Ray Jackson, he was 17 years old when he killed somebody in a convenience store robbery that he committed with an older man who was influencing him, like a 26, 27 mm-hmm. year old. He was in a, he was coming from a rough home. He didn't spend a lot of time with his parents. All of the Miller factors that you're supposed to consider, mm-hmm. if they had been considered at his resentencing, would seem to mitigate the likelihood of him getting a juvenile life with life sentence. If the court sides with Malvo, then Derek Ray Jackson will get a chance to be resentenced. And and this is a key point here. It doesn't mean that getting resentenced means you're going to get out something. Right. Yeah, 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 I didn't mean to say that before. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's, no, it's, it's, a, re- a, it's a more exacting look at yeah. it. Right? Yeah, it, it, and that's the whole idea of protecting their constitutional right not to get cruel and unusual punishment. You know, I think the Supreme Court considered that there would be people that might be so terrible that they do deserve this kind of sentence mm-hmm. even at a young age. Yeah. Their only point was you have to consider the totality of the child and especially this idea that they could be rehabilitated in a way that an older person whose brain might be less elastic would not be able to. Yeah, so since we are coming into these arguments um, next week, is there anything you're going to be looking out for, RJ, that our listeners should be paying attention to as well? The really interesting thing about this case, I think, is that there's no longer a Justice Kennedy on the court. And Justice Kennedy really championed juvenile justice reforms. Mm-hmm. It was it was kind of a project of his. He wrote the Montgomery decision okay. that made Miller retroactive and he wrote it in kind of a funny way that some of the language almost suggests that there should not be any juvenile life sentences about he said he said something like only the rare totally depraved yeah and so some of malvo's advocates are saying that if a judge doesn't say that in the sentencing then they have to be resentenced Mm. according to miller and because nobody said that at malvo's sentencing that's what they're saying Virginia and other people who are more, you know, this is what he deserves. They're like, it's not like a, a perfect recipe that a judge has to say this perfect little phrase. Yeah, that, there's no that magic Kennedy, words. Right, yeah. there's no magic words. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how the newest justices on the court, how they deal with this case, especially considering that six of the nine justices on the court were living and working in D.C. when Malvo was terrorizing the community. Yeah. I wonder if they Oof. feel like they have to give a disclaimer at the start of this, the way I did at the start of this conversation. I mean, it, it does impact the way you feel about this and view the case if you lived in that area at the time it was happening. It's such an interesting point. I mean, we've talked about it a lot here, but th- this idea of uh, these other people who have different fact patterns than, than Malvo, who, you know, it's the idea of being grouped in with someone who did do this this heinous uh, yeah. sort of uh, uh, news grabbing crime um, you know I'm sure that they're all sitting there watching and hoping that the idea of you know bad facts make bad law doesn't doesn't affect the way that their cases are, are dealt with yeah definitely and thanks for coming on to explain that RJ we'll have to watch and see how this one turns out yep thanks for having me on y'all
That's all the time we have for this week, so we'll wrap it up here. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, RJ Vogt, and contributing reporters, Jody Godoy, Braden Campbell, and Corey Atkinson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the things we talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you leave us a review or subscribe wherever you're listening. Thanks, and join us again next week.